0: Please turn with me in your Bibles to our text this morning, which comes from the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 1, as we'll be looking at verses 1 through 8 this morning. Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. Hear with me then the reading of God's holy word. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared after me comes He who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Thus far as the reading of God's Word. Well, brothers and sisters, this morning we begin our study in the Gospel of Mark. And so my objective today, even before we get into the text at the outset, is addressing important background information of this Gospel, like who's the author, what do we know about the author, and so on, so that in understanding these things, it can help us to, as we learn about certain aspects of Mark's Gospel as we journey through this together. And so with respect to its author, it's well attested to by the early fathers that John Mark is the author of this Gospel. Right? Second century church fathers like Papias, Eusebius, Tertullian, and Irenaeus all affirm Mark's authorship. Now, Mark himself was not an apostle. But this does not take away at all or detract from the apostolic nature of this Gospel. Because apostolic Origin is one attribute of canonicity. And yet here, although Mark is not an apostle, he still fits the criteria. Because as we look at, at all scholarship, for the, the consensus is is as Mark writes this gospel, he is using the eyewitness account of the apostle Peter. Right? Mark is writing using what he has learned from Peter. And in fact, we, we see this as we work through the Gospel, as Peter is the, the first apostle that Mark names in the Gospel. He is the last apostle Mark names in the Gospel. And he is the most often mentioned apostle throughout Mark's Gospel. And in Dr. Michael Kruger's book, Canon Revisited, he says that Mark does this to show us that it's on the basis of Peter's authority that he writes. Now, Peter and Mark were very close friends. This isn't something pulled out of thin air. In fact, Peter, at the end of his first epistle, says this. In chapter 5, verse 13, he says, She who is in Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. And so does Mark, my son. See, so there's no doubt that Mark and Peter spent a a lot of time together. Enough so that Peter would call Mark his son. Right? And so it's during this time that they, they spent together that Peter tells him those things that he, he saw and he heard and he, he recounts these stories of Christ. But this isn't the first time that we, that we hear the name of Mark. In fact, in Acts chapter 12, we hear of Mark. As, as you recall, Peter is imprisoned at this time. And the angel of the Lord helps to break Peter out of prison. And we read in verse 12 of Acts 12 that he went to the house of Mary the mother of John, whose other name is Mark, where many gathered and prayed. And so we see that even Mark's mother was a, a saint who the, who the other apostles and believers went to her house to, to gather and to pray. It was a, a safe haven for them. Yet we also read of Mark in Colossians chapter 4 verse 10 that he is the cousin of Barnabas. And in Acts we see that Mark actually accompanies Paul and Barnabas on their missionary journey in Acts 12:25. Yet unfortunately, everything that we read about Mark is not all positive. In fact, in Acts chapter 15, verses 36 to 41, we actually see that Paul is upset with Mark. For while they were away on their journey, we read that Mark had, at some point had abandoned them and had left. And so Paul says he didn't want to journey with Mark anymore. And so it's at this time that Paul and Silas go one way and Barnabas and Mark go another. And yet fortunately for these brothers, it does not end there as they would soon recon- reconcile as we see that Peter later instructs Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11, to get Mark and bring him with you to me for he is very useful to me in ministry. Okay. So now, as we move from that, now, the place of Mark's writing. So the place of Mark's writing is, is most likely going to be in Rome, as Peter said at the end of uh, his first epistle, that Mark was there with him in Rome. In addition, there are many places in Mark's Gospel that would lend to reading that 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 is the audience. The Romans are the audience because what Mark does is he has to explain Jewish customs a lot of times to these believers, which means that they're probably, he's writing to Gentile believers. Um, now, the dating of the gospel uh, can vary depending on the scholarship, actually. Uh, that isn't to say that, that each position has uh, equal amount of strength for it, but it's actually... Uh, can be ascribed or attributed to four different decades. Some say it was written in the 40s, some say 50s, some say 60s, and some as late as the 70s. Um, D.A. Carson, in his uh, introduction to the New Testament, he believes that it was written at the, towards the end of the 50s and the beginning of the 60s. Okay, Because D.A. Carson holds to what's called the, the Markan priority. So he holds that Mark is the first gospel written, and that Luke and that Matthew then used Mark as a source in their writings. And so he knows that Luke was written about 62 A.D. And so he says, well, Mark must have then been written towards the end of the 50s, early 60s. I think the other strong possibility is that Mark is written about 64 or 65 A.D. And the reason why we can say this is because Mark writes a lot about persecution and suffering. And what do we know what's going on about that time in Rome? Right? The emperor Nero is right now viciously attacking Christians at this time. And so it makes sense that he would be writing about persecution and suffering to a church that is being afflicted with such horrors. Okay? And so I think it would be safe to say we could probably date Mark's Gospel somewhere between 55 AD and 65 AD to be on the safe side. Now as we turn to answer the question of what is the, what is the purpose of Mark's Gospel. Now, I don't like to break down any book you know, to one or two things, but if we had to do it, we might say that Mark's Gospel is about uh, telling us who Jesus is and also telling us about what discipleship is. So, Mark's Gospel is about Jesus and discipleship. And we can really divide these two concerns of our author in two halves. The first would be from Mark 1 to Mark 8. We kind of see focusing on who Jesus is, is, as Mark will recount story after story after story of Jesus' powerful working of miracles, right, attesting to the deity of Christ. But then in in Mark 8.29, we have this turning point. This climactic climactic, uh, statement given to us from Peter. It's Peter's confession that Jesus is the Messiah. This is the turning point to that first half of the Gospel. And then the second half really then tells us what Jesus being the Messiah entails, both for Christ and for His Apostles. Now what you will find though in Mark's Gospel is no genealogy, no background, as it's the shortest of the four Gospels. But what it lacks in length it makes up for in speed and in pace, right? Mark just jumps quickly, place to place to place, head first into his message that he's trying to convey. There's no build up, no drama, no questions concerning what Mark believes. He just comes right out and tells us, right? And that is this. He does it right initially in verse one, right? That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. This is the proclamation that Mark gives us from the beginning that forms the basis of the entirety of the Gospel. Right? To believe in the person of Jesus is to believe that He is the God-man. And Mark sketches this out very well for us. And it's Mark's kind of straightforward style that really attracted me to this Gospel. I really liked it. I found it refreshing. And so as I was thinking about you know, what are we going to do next after second thessalonians i thought let's let's turn to mark i think mark would be a a good place to to turn to but ultimately my purpose and my desire for choosing the gospel of mark was really for each of us to get to know jesus christ the son of god better to get to know jesus christ the son of god deeper right in more depth and then hopefully by god's grace this will then lead us to greater piety and greater practice And so that concludes our introduction, our brief introduction to the background of of Mark's Gospel, right? Who's the author? Where was it written? When was it written? Who's the audience? What's its purpose? So now let us turn our attention and begin to look at these first eight verses today. Now, the title of our sermon is The Ministry of John. Because as we'll see, John plays a very vital role in this new Gospel era in ushering in the Messiah and with it, the kingdom of God. And so because we spent the first part here going over the introduction, we're not going to have our customary three points, we're just going to have two. And those two points will be this, the messenger and the message. The messenger and the message. And so in point one, what we really want to to do is identify who John is. Why is he such an important figure in redemptive history? So much so that, that Mark will open his gospel and in the very second verse be telling us about John the Baptist. Now, as we all know, John was born to Zechariah and Elizabeth. And from the very beginning, John's parents knew their son's mission. As the angel of the Lord came to them in Luke chapter 1 and told them. This is why at the end of Luke chapter 1 and verse 76, Zechariah can say, You, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare His ways, to give knowledge of salvation to His people for the forgiveness of their sins. And so we can be sure that John's parents taught their son what his mission and his purpose was going to be in life. And as we will see, John was very conscious of what his mission was going to be. Now, as Mark begins, what he wants us to see is that John the Baptist's identity is tied up with the prophetic word of Isaiah. And he demonstrates that to us in verses 2 and 3. As Mark begins in verse 2 saying, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. Now, what's curious is that if you read this text... Both of these verses don't come from Isaiah the prophet. Uh, Verse two comes from Malachi uh, chapter three verse one. And verse three of Mark one three comes from Isaiah chapter forty verse three. And so if someone comes to their Bible, kind of disingenuous, wants to find troubles in Scripture, they'll they'll turn here and they'll say, See, look at that. The Bible's wrong. How can you say this is inspired by God? This is just men writing these words. Right, You can spend your lifetime looking in Isaiah for verse 2 and you'll never find it. It's not there. And we probably know people like that. But anyone who comes to the Scripture honestly, desiring to understand it, will be able to easily see that this is the way that ancient writers wrote. Mark isn't the only one to quote like this. We have Matthew in his Gospel who quotes the exact same way. Well, they'll highlight the, the major prophet. They'll highlight the, the major verse that really uh, undergirds the point that they are trying to make. And that's what Mark's doing here. This is why he just points to the major prophet Isaiah. Right? And he quotes. It's not because Mark is ignorant of the Old Testament. And so Mark doesn't know what he's doing. He doesn't know where he's quoting from. No, in fact, Mark knows very well his Old tes- Testament. And he knows it so well, that's why he quotes this. To demonstrate that his fulfillment is found in John the Baptist. And so I want us to quickly look at these these two verses together. You can turn with me if you'd like, or you can just listen. The first is Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. Now at this time, the Lord is angry with Israel in the first couple of verses of Malachi for... Their men were going off and marrying women who serve foreign gods. And the, the priests were offering polluted sacrifices before God. And so God is angry with them. But then we will read in, verses, in chapter 3 and chapter 4. This time of reversal, God will come and he will heal Israel and judge its enemies. And so this is what we read then in Malachi chapter 3 verse 1. Behold, I will send my messenger and He will prepare the way before Me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to His temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, He is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Okay? So now turn with me to Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. As this verse was viewed by the Jews as speaking of a time in which the exiled... Israelites would once again regather in Jerusalem. And this is what we read in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. A voice cries in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for God. Now there's a whole lot to unpack in this verse, but what Mark is telling his audience with regard to John is that John is the one who was prophesied of by both Malachi and Isaiah, John is the one who was to come and prepare the way of the Lord. And this is how John understood his own self. In the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 23, John is asked, who is he? And his response is very telling. He says, I am the voice of the one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. You see, John sees his mission as being the messenger, as being a herald of the, of the gospel, of the proclamation of the gospel. But I want you to see something. In understanding John's mission, Mark is also telling us something about the identity of Jesus. In telling us about John's mission, Mark is also telling us something about the identity of Jesus. Now, you have to understand, in pagan culture... When a king was to go into a town, before he was to visit it, a messenger or a herald would go before the king to that city before the king arrived. And he would proclaim to the town, the king is coming, prepare yourselves for the king's arrival. They were to ready themselves for when the king was to come. They were ready to ready their city, ready themselves. And this is the same imagery now we have here in verses 2 and 3 of John. Right? This tells us John was sent forth by God for the very purpose of preparing people's hearts for King Jesus' arrival. That was John's mission from the womb. This is why John is such an important figure and why Mark brings him to us in verse 2. Because without the coming of John and the preparing the way of the Lord, Jesus the King could never have come. Right, John had to fulfill what Scripture spoke of. right? Or else people would say, that can't be the true Messiah. Right? The, the Word of God is yet to be fulfilled. And yet, brothers and sisters, this also is a perfect example of the continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament. I want us to see that as well. People like to break them in two. They like to treat the Old Covenant or the Old Testament as the Scriptures to the Jews and the New Testament as the Scriptures to the Christians. But this is not the way that any of the New Testament writers nor Jesus viewed both the Old and New Testaments. Right? The New Testament always interprets the Old Testament. It gives us its fullest meaning. It reveals to us its fullest meaning. And so I don't know about you, but I'm going to interpret the Scriptures just like Jesus and His apostles did. And they see John as the fulfillment of the messenger who was to go before the Lord. Now what we also read about John is this in verse 6. Look with me there. Mark 1 verse 6. That John was clothed in camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and a locust in wild honey. But here again, let us take note of the Old Testament reference that, that this is going back to that this is pointing to. I want us to see how John fulfills this text as well. Turn with me, or you can just listen if you like to 2 Kings chapter 1 verse 8. 2 Kings chapter 1 verse 8. <clears throat> Now, at this time, there's, a, there's an evil king who is ruling. And he sends some messengers to inquire about whether he will die or not. And the Lord of God comes uh, to Elijah at this time, and he tells Elijah, go intercept those messengers. And I want you to tell them, yes, the king will die, because he has gone after foreign gods. And when these messengers returned to tell the king what Elijah said, the king asked, who was this? And this is what we read in verse 8. He wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather about his waist. And he said it is Elijah the Tishbite. That sounds a lot like what we just read, doesn't it, brothers and sisters? Right? You see today, Jews who reject that Jesus is the Messiah at the Passover meal will will pour out five cups of wine and they will only drink four of them and they will leave one not touched. And there are many reasons, but one of the reasons is because they are still waiting for Elijah to return. To herald in ultimate redemption and prepare the way of the Lord. They look to Malachi chapter 4, verse 5 for this. Just listen to me as I, as, as I re- recall this text to you here. Malachi 4, 5. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of their fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. You see, because Elijah has yet to return... They say Jesus cannot be the Messiah. But Mark clearly identifies John the Baptist as Elijah who was to come. Not Elijah physically, but in the spirit of Elijah. Right? Mark says John fulfills the prophecy of Elijah's return. And this is exactly what the angel of the Lord tells John's parents in Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, verse 16, the angel of the Lord says this about John the Baptist. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. You see, so many people's unwillingness to accept Jesus as the Messiah is due to their inability to understand the Scriptures. Because they hold this stark contrast between the Testaments but it's plain to the one who has ears. Jesus says in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 11, verse 13, For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, He is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. You see, if you refuse to understand and see how the New Testament interprets the Old. You'll still be looking for Elijah. You'll still be looking for the Messiah. You'll still be looking for a rebuilt temple. You'll still be looking for reestablished sacrifices. And you're gonna miss out on the richness of what, in fact, Christ has done, tying both Testaments beautifully together by His coming. You see, what was concealed in the old is now revealed to us in the new. Malachi is that last book of the Old Testament. And almost 400 years divides the two testaments. But as Mark opens up in his very first lines, he already brings these two testaments together seamlessly. Right? This is why nowhere in Scripture does it contradict itself. Because they are one book about Christ and about His redemption that was to come. Christ has always been at the forefront of the Scriptures. Perhaps veiled in the Law and the Prophets. But now with John, in breaks the new Gospel state which the whole Old Testament pointed towards. And although God left His people for hundreds of years without a prophet. When God so sovereignly appointed in His time that new prophet to come, He called forth John the Baptist. And John received the Word just like any prophet. He didn't go out and speak on his own accord. He received the Word of the Lord. And then he went out to proclaim this message. Right, this is our first point. This is what I want us to understand. Right, John was appointed prior to his birth to be a herald To the proclamation of the coming of our Lord. Right? He knew his mission. And when that time came, he went out in the spirit and power of Elijah to fulfill what our Lord through his prophets declared was going to come. And so this leads us then to our second point this morning. As we have learned about the messenger. Now what was the message? Right? John's message was clear. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was coming. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was coming. This is the message that is clear that Mark is trying to give to his audience. In verse 1, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. There was no hiding the purpose. And it is this one that John speaks about in verse 7. When he says, After me comes one who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. You see, brothers and sisters, John himself was quite famous. As we read here in our text today, all of Jerusalem, all of Judea went out to see John. But what does John do? John deflects. He do he wants no glory. He deflects to Christ because he knows who the message is about. It's not about John the Baptist. It's about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so he deflects. Because like Mark, John the Baptist is very familiar with the Old Testament. And just like he knew his own mission and his own purpose, he likewise knows the mission and the purpose of the One who was to come. And I want you to see this in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. As I said, when we first looked at it, there's a lot to unpack there. We just looked at what that meant for John. But it has a much greater and deeper meaning than that as well. I'll read it one more time for us here. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. A voice in the wilderness cries, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. And remember, this is the same verse John quotes About who he identifies himself to be in John 1.23. That first half has to deal with John. But what does Isaiah say about the one who is to come? Who is John preparing the way for in Isaiah chapter 40 verse 3? It is God. It is God who John the Baptist is making straight a highway for in the desert. You see, Mark and John both understood that the One who was to come was divine. And this verse from Isaiah is thus taken and now applied to Jesus Christ. This is what the message is about. It is Jesus who is the Christ. And ladies and gentlemen, Christ isn't His last name. It is Jesus who is the Messiah or the Anointed One, who is also God who John was declaring who was to come in human form in the person of Christ to save his people from their sins. This forms the basis of John's message. This is why then we find John described as doing two things as he was preparing the way of the Lord. And we read this in verse 4. John appeared baptizing and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Right? The message was Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is coming, so be baptized. And he preached a baptism for the forgiveness of sins. You see, John was preparing the hearts of the people, softening their hearts, readying them to receive Christ when he came. And John's message is clear to all: everyone must turn and repent of their sin and be baptized, which was the sign and seal of that cleansing, of that transformation, of that inward renewal. Now, of course, water cleansed no one. But it was an outward sign of the inward work. Now, John says in verse 8 that He baptized only with water. But the one who was to come was going to baptize them with the Holy Spirit. You see, John's message is the one who is to come is so infinitely superior to me that when He comes by His own authority, He is going to pour out His Holy Spirit upon all those who believe. And this is pointing forward then to the outpouring of the Spirit at the day of Pentecost. Now the repentance that John speaks of is not a mere deciding to, to not do one thing and to do another. For those of us who, who live in this area, it's not going, saying, I want to go to Oscars to get some custard, but instead I'm deciding to go to Culver's. That's not what That's not what repentance means. But rather it's a it's a transformation of the total life of the person. And this transformation is evidenced by fruit. Right? So often people say, Well, you know, I repented, I asked Jesus into my heart, he forgave me, but we see no transformation of life. Well, that's not repentance. Repentance is not a a magic phrase or a word that we say or do and voila. No, but rather repentance, first of all, is something that is granted to the Christian by God where now we have a, a hatred of our former life. Right? And we, put on, we put off the old man. We put on the new. We turn to Christ by faith and we become radically new as the Spirit applies redemption to us. Right? This is why John says in the parallel account to our text today in Matthew chapter 3, you remember when the Pharisees come to Mark and He says, you brood of, you brood of vipers, uh, who told you to flee from the wrath to come? Bring fruit in keeping with repentance. And yet, baptism, water, bearing fruit, repentance, none of these things bring remission of sin. None of them bring remission of sin. We are all called to repent for our sin, but it is only the work of Christ that brings about the remission of our sins. And yet, brothers and sisters, I want us to see the continuity of the message. So often, John the Baptist and Jesus are pitted against each other as if they're proclaiming different messages. Or Jesus is pitted against His disciples as if they proclaim different messages. But it couldn't be further from the truth. right? We read, John the Baptist proclaimed repentance and forgiveness of sins. But He does it Proclaim, or he proclaims repentance and forgiveness of sins in the one who will come. In G- Jesus, in Luke's Gospel, chapter 24, he tells, "Go out and proclaim repentance for the forgiveness of sins in the one who has come." That's the only difference. John is pointing forward to Christ. Christ, is saying, "Put your faith in the one who put your faith in the one who already has come." And this is the same thing we see from the apostles. This is what Peter preaches in Acts 2:48 where he says this in Acts 2.38, excuse me, Repent, be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. They all proclaim the exact same message. This is the same message, brothers and sisters, that we must proclaim today. I fear that too often we shy away from proclaiming that message thinking that people don't like to hear that message. They don't want to hear that they're sinners and they must repent. But that is the message that we are called to proclaim. Repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Trusting in Christ, the One who has come to take away our sin by nailing it to the cross. There is no other way. And to a world right now that is broken, to a world right now that is hurting and battling and looking for answers, my question would be, have you repented and placed your faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Because no amount of external reform can do anything internally to the darkness of the human heart. You see, at the, at the, the core, at the root problem of all of society's ills is the sinfulness of man. We all stand guilty before God. Everyone, Everywhere. And so we must be called to repentance and a turning to Christ, looking to Him alone, that He might forgive us our sins and make us white as snow. But it is ultimately only He who can bring healing and cure brokenness. Not Muhammad, not Joseph Smith, not Buddha, not a president, not any social activist, This alone belongs to God. And especially in the person of Christ who came and suffered and died and was buried and raised on the third day. Fully God, yet fully man. And He had to be that. Because if not fully man, He could not die in our stead. And if not fully God, He could not live a perfect and obedient life. And He could not be mediator between God and men. And this is God's message It's a message also of reconciliation. right? You cannot be reconciled man to man until man is reconciled to God. And this only comes through Jesus Christ. But guess what, brothers and sisters? That's the good news. That's the good news. That God has made a way. He has made a way. God's saving action in the life and death and resurrection of Christ. And now we're called to say repent and believe. And for those who have had our hearts opened and ready to receive it, there are no more precious words than that. And so as we draw to a close, there's one thing that I would like us to take away and to apply to ourselves this day and going forward. And and it's this. I want us to see the reverence and the honor and the respect that John has for Jesus Christ. In particular, we see this in verse 7 because I'm not sure that many Christians hold such a high view as John the Baptist did. Look once more at verse 7 with me, please. John says this of Jesus, and he preached, saying, After me comes one who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. Now you have to understand the background of the statement to understand the power of John's words. During this time, Everyone everyone wore sandals, right? And they walked around on dirty, dusty roads. And when they came home, masters didn't want to get their hands dirty by reaching down and undoing their own sandals. So their slaves did it. Sorry. Their slaves did it for them. And John is saying, in comparison to Christ, I am worth less than a slave. That is how he viewed himself in comparison to Christ. And my question is this, is that how we view ourselves in comparison to Christ? I tend to think not. I tend to think not. I think too often, Christians think of Christ like He's, like he's their peer, like He's a, a good buddy who just lived a little better than us. Or we like to think of ourselves as so great that God just had to send His Son because we're so special and magnificent and, and so He just had to send Him to die for us because He needed us so bad. Our hearts are so depraved. We so often... Think so highly of ourselves and so little of Christ. And so if there's anything that you take away from today, I want you to have the mind of John. Have the mind of John. Especially, don't overestimate yourself, especially in comparison to the perfect, sinless Lamb of God. And when we think about this, brothers and sisters, let us just stop. Let us humble ourselves, consider it, and then in response, worship and praise and exalt this holy name. Please, if you will, bow your heads with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, Your Word is so powerful. As we recognize and realize our, our own sinfulness, in light of who Christ is. And yet we thank You for Your Gospel. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who came to seek and save those who are lost. This is the good news. And we are so thankful for this, Lord. And we pray that You would remind us every day of the Gospel that we need to hear. That You would give us right perspective of who we are Apart from Christ and who we have been made now because of Christ, and so Father, we come before you, we pray all this in Jesus name. Amen.